Hi folks, welcome back to another episode of Bibliology. Hope you're all doing great. Looking forward to another highly theological episode today, as you'll get to hear my recent interview with Dr. Eve Tibbs of Fuller Theological Seminary on the elusive and mysterious theology of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Eve is an expert on the Eastern Church and is in fact the former chair of the Eastern Orthodox Studies Group of the American Academy of Religion. Um, she has also served as a member of the Executive Steering Committee of the Huffington Ecumenical Institute at Loyola Marymount University since 2015. Um, her recent book will get you up to speed on all things Eastern Orthodox, so if that's something that interests you, click on the link below and have fun getting theological. Um, with all that said, let's get on to the show, and I hope you all enjoy the conversation today and the exciting conversations that are to follow in the coming weeks. Sit tight. Hello, Eve. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Patrick. It's my pleasure and honor. Okay. So today we're going to be talking about your new book, which is entitled A Basic Guide to Eastern Orthodox Theology, Introducing Beliefs and Practices. And um, the audience can find that in the description. But um, before we get on to that, it might be good if we can just uh, get to know you a little bit, get to know... Uh, Dr. Eve Tibbs and uh, what she's like as a person. I have a, a set of brief fun questions here. And this is a this is a classic one that I love to ask all people who are um, just big into the academy. If you weren't a professor, what would you do for a living? That, that's such a great question. Um, well, okay, the, the not fun answer. Well, I guess it's fun. My first degree is in computer science and I loved working as a software engineer. Um, but I was being called into theological study. So that's practically what I'd be doing if I wasn't a professor. But I think I've always loved the idea of owning a coffee house with a reading room and, I, and I'd be the barista. So the fun answer is I would love to be making espresso drinks for people <laughs> on a regular basis. I love coffee and making espresso drinks. Okay, right. We're more tea people over here in Ireland uh, for your information. So yeah. Um. And you, well, I, I could do a chai as well, but that would, you know, in my in my dreams, that was what I would enjoy doing, serving people, basically. Yes, it's also interesting to me that you said a computer scientist. Of course, I have to, <laughs> I have to delve into that a bit more. Was this like? Um, I'll try and ask this in a respectful manner. Um, how long ago would it have been? Like, would it have been like the contemporary computer stuff, like JavaScript and all that sort of thing? It was or? just a little before. I was a, um, you know, I started out in the DOS world, but I was a C plus plus programmer um, with an NT computer. I did uh, SQL Server database programming, front end and back end. So, you know, it's kind of the last generation. Wow. Okay. Right. Well, that that is certainly an, an interesting uh, bit of information <laughs> there. So another interesting, fun question is, of course, in this book that we're going to be talking about, you devote a whole section to this book to excerpts from the Church Fathers. And I find this, it's always interesting to ask who people's favorite and least favorite church father is. And just a hint that you can't say your least favorite church father was Marcion. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah. How would you answer that question? Your favorite? Well, least favorite? Uh, a great question. Again, uh, my, my, I think, I suppose my favorite, two favorites, um, St. Irenaeus, who is the Bishop of Lyon in the second century and uh, St. Athanasius, who is the Bishop of Alexandria. Uh, and for the same reason, but opposite, because they both had to defend against heresies, as it happens, opposite heresies, Gnosticism for Irenaeus and 
Arianism for Athanasius. And I think their writings are just as understandable and relevant today as they were then, because we're still dealing with, you know, both extremes. Absolutely. And Elise's favorite? I don't think I want to answer that. Um, but it's, it's the reason he's not my favorite is not his fault. Okay. But, but it's Augustine of Hippo. Because he was brilliant, he was faithful. But since today we'll be talking about Eastern Orthodox theology, um, really none of his or very few of his important um, distinctions have been accepted by the Eastern Church. Um, I, I, Rome kind of accepted his views and was not necessarily in agreement with the rest of the Christian world at the time, the Pentarchy. And so I think it led to later church unity problems. So I tend to avoid reading him, but again, it's not his fault. I think he was a, a faithful and brilliant Christian. So we'll just leave it at that. Okay, that's that's good. <laughs> so um, on that note, like, what is your own connection to the Eastern Orthodox Church? Um, do you consider yourself Eastern Orthodox, or are you kind of more of a fascinated outsider? I'm Greek by descent, and I'm what they call a cradle Orthodox. I was baptized as an infant in the Greek Orthodox Church, but only marginally raised in the faith. Um, I became a committed disciple of Jesus Christ and a practicing Orthodox Christian on my own as a teenager, basically going back to the same church at which I was, uh, in which I was baptized. And my husband and I raised our family in the Greek Orthodox Church. So I guess I'm a fascinated insider. Okay. Okay. Right. And th that's interesting to me because um, as like, as a Reformed Presbyterian, if like, I just can't imagine myself like becoming a an academic who's like researching the Reformed Presbyterian Church, you know, because mm -hmm. it would just it would just feel so, um, you know, it's what it's all I know, like you know. So I'd be wanting to explore things that are like outside of my uh, my tradition. But um, is it just because the Orthodox tradition there's so much within it to explore? There's so much. Have? There's so much. Um, it, I mean, I, the depths and the and the breadth is just is fascinating. We'll get on to speaking about um, the book. As I was like researching your own um, curriculum vitae or, or whatever, whatever you'd say, <laughs> um, it, it seems that ecumenism, kind of this uh, interaction with other with uh, other Christian groups, and uh, it's a large part of your large part of your work. Um, and so, in your experience, um, how well understood is Eastern Orthodox theology in Catholic and Protestant circles? In your experience. Thank you. Um, well, it, it's, it does seem to me that most typical Protestants uh, think that Eastern Orthodoxy is an ancient or exotic form of Roman Catholicism. Since there are, you know, from the, from the outside, there are many outward similarities. There's the Orthodox have priests and it's liturgical and there's incense and confession and all of that. Um, and I think many Roman Catholics feel the same way. You know, we're, we're all the same. And of course, there are many ecumenically sensitive things that are, are similar. Um, belief in the divinity of Jesus Christ, for example. But I've, I've found that even in professional ecumenical settings, as you mentioned, like the World Council of Churches, orthodoxy has been little understood. Um, and I think the main issue is ecclesiological, because the orthodox church defies the western categories, such as high church, or um, liturgical, or, you know, we charismatic. So the Orthodox Church is indeed charismatic, but it is also orderly and formal and liturgical. And those things don't always go together in the West. Yeah. Um, and so Orthodoxy typically is relegated to one or the other, usually 
high church, but you, but it's not <laughs> because it's also charismatic. So I think there's many aspects that are misunderstood. Um, soteriology, there's nothing, I mentioned Augustine, there's nothing like Augustine's inherited guilt and orthodoxy. And I, and I think a lot of Christians in the West assume that those are the incontrovertible universal views of, you know, of humanity's problem. And orthodoxy has, has a little bit of a different view of some of those, those issues. Okay, that's interesting. And um, I suppose another thing that might, I've heard this anyway, that, that might cause these misunderstandings would be um, that not a lot of Eastern Orthodox material is actually available in English. Uh, would that be correct? That's absolutely correct. Um, and and a, a lot of Orthodox writing, even when it's in English, is written in a in a uh, in an Orthodox style. I don't know how else to say it. The language is not what most Western readers understand. And I, I think that's one thing that makes my current book a little bit different. Having having been a systematic theology professor in an evangelical seminary for a lot of years, um, I, I have tried to write in a style that most Western readers would be more familiar with. Okay. Okay. And it seems to have at least preserved the, the, um, the fundamentals of the theology, because this of course has been endorsed by um, prominent Eastern Orthodox uh, people in the church and so to speak. And I'd like to see how, um, how badly I have misunderstood Eastern Orthodox <laughs> theology. So and I think if a, as a non-expert, if someone asked me, you know, what makes the Eastern Orthodox Church different, I would probably like guess, you know, I'd say, well, as far as I'm aware, Eastern Orthodox theology is more mystical in its leanings. And to what extent do you think, is this a caricature or am I onto something there? You're definitely onto something. It's not a caricature. Uh, okay. But this is, of course, it's only one of the differences, of, as I've alluded to already. Um, Orthodox theology is definitely mystical theology. And even the sacraments are properly called holy mysteries. So um, a holy mystery, however, is not a secret. It's not something that's hidden like a mystery novel like Agatha Christie. Um, but in the Bible, if we, if we look at the Bible, mysteria, which is often translated as secret, so it's, it's, you know, that's why people might think that. But mysteria reveals to the way that God reveals God's self in a direct and personal way. For example... Um, Jesus told his disciples in Mark 4.11, to you has been given to know the mystery or mysteria of the kingdom of God. But most English translations will say the secrets of God. And the uh, big, big important difference. So this reality, this mystical reality is out in the open, but it's not being perceived in the same way by everyone. So, um, you know, a good example of this would be... Um, Jesus's transfiguration on Mount Tabor. That's mysteria. It's real. It's concrete. It really happened. But a scholarly, you know, tome could never adequately explain what Peter, James, and John experienced when they were illumined by, by, by Christ's uh, uncreated glory. So mystical, yes, but also rational in the sense that, um, well, not scholastic. Because, um, you know, they, they didn't, it wasn't a, an educational moment, but they were so overcome by experiencing the glory of God that they weren't even able to contemplate the reality. They fell down on their face to the ground. And yet 
it was almost you know, hyper-rational. What they experienced couldn't be put into words, but that doesn't mean it wasn't something intelligible to their, you know, to their, to their noose, to their self. It's a personal experiencing of, of God with one's entire being. And it's out there for everyone. But think about those who encountered Jesus Christ, you know, historically. His disciples were right there with him, experiencing his, his glory. And yet other people who were right there with him didn't see the same thing that was right there in front of them. And so there's a sense that this is not a secret. Um, it's God, it's out there, but it's being perceived in different ways by different people. So there's also the idea that we're not merely to be instructed by God or, uh, or even to contemplate the sacraments, but it's rather beyond the thought forms to the place where, you know, we are supposed to be transformed by the love of God and the experience and presence of God. Um, so in, it, it's not, not, not rational. It just encompasses our entire being. So that's kind of how I would, I know, I know, as you say, it's a hard word to translate and, and understand. Yes. And I think, um, um, I'm sure people can all, can already tell that, um, it's it's not just the theology itself that has a different flavor, but it's also the way of doing theology. And this is something you note in your in the opening chapter of your book. Um, so could you briefly maybe explain the audience, um, if you can briefly explain sure. <laughs> how Eastern Orthodox theology how is it done differently exactly? Okay, well, um, as I explained in the book, worship is primary in Orthodox theology. Um, so I refer to the, to the Greek word theologia. It's an ancient term uh, about what we understand to be the ideas, the thoughts, the concepts. And yet in the ancient world and in the, in the, in the Bible and the New Testament, the ideas about God could never be separated from prayer and contemplation. So in an Orthodox worldview, doing theology first means doing worship. And I have also quoted Evagrius of Ponticus, who was a fourth century uh, monk, and he famously stated, if you truly pray, you are a true theologian. If you are a true theologian, you truly pray. Uh, also a little bit different in the Orthodox world, the theology has to be affirmed by the shared experience of the living God in worship, because it's the Holy Spirit who guides the faithful together to a shared, to one understanding of the nature of God. And this is why the ecumenical councils are so important to the Orthodox. Mm -hmm. the, the bishops who participated, they were the Eucharistic overseers. They were the ones whose role it was to call down the Holy Spirit on the congregation and on the gifts that were offered. So when they, you know, labored, when they carefully, soberly, prayerfully labored uh, to come up with uh, the language to put these eternal realities, you know, it, it, you know, into into language without stepping on error, they were doing so under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and they believed. And the reason that the ecumenical council is so important is because the Holy Spirit is one. They would all have to agree to the same truth. So this is not like what we think might think of as democratic voting. Um, this yeah. it's a conciliar approach where if we truly believe that the Holy Spirit is one, we will all wait until we can all agree. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's definitely an interesting way of putting it. And um, it's it. What, one thing I actually really like about what you just said is um, 
uh, I, I'm sure the the audio has probably caught me giving a hearty amen amen when you said it. But when you were talking about you know that the best theologian is the one who's a prayerful person, you know, I really like that because that sounds very um, egalitarian. You know, you don't have your um, the people up there, you know, in their ivory towers who have however many PhDs, and then you have just these uneducated exactly. people. They're all they're all the same if they all pray. So I just exactly and. If, if I might, there, I think this is, I always think about um, the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. And Peter and Peter and Paul and um, Barnabas, they, nobody made the decision. You talk about the one person in the ivory tower. They couldn't make this decision about how to receive Gentile converts to Christianity. And so they sent word back to James, who was the, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And then what did he do? Um, he called a council of the faithful. And it says not just the elders, but it says the whole church. And they prayed until they agreed. And and it's one of my favorite um, passages, Acts chapter 15, verse 28. And I only like the first part. And it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So the emphasis is on that. Clearly, they waited for unanimity, for one answer. And sometimes that takes a long time to get to the one answer, but, you know, conciliarity needs to, you know, in the Orthodox Church, conciliarity is the primary, um, mm. primary motivation. Absolutely. And that's probably one of the things that would uh, distinguish uh, the Orthodox Church from uh, Protestantism, at least, in that Protestantism has a lot of diversity, so to speak. You know, this is yeah. one of, exactly, it's one of the ways that distinguishes from both Western forms, major forms of Christianity. There is no Pope in the Orthodox Church. There's no one person who can declare dogma, or who has the sole authority, such as the Roman Catholic Pope, you know, however, you know, faithful he may be. And, and the Protestant world has, as you say, the egalitarian approach, but it leads to many different interpretations. So somewhere in the middle, you know, we're, we're like we're like one and we're like the other, but in different ways. Yeah, um, it just came to mind there for me that one of the the criticisms I think that someone might have of the Orthodox Church, and uh, this, of course, uh, this is said, you know, in uh, in good spirit, of course, um, of course, would be the idea that um, um, it doesn't it it wouldn't leave much room for critical thinking if people have to agree on everything, you know. Um, so, so how would you respond to that? You know. So, I think there's a lot of room for critical thinking, um, but not ideas. Not all ideas are necessarily received by the whole church. There's another favorite term. Like I did put it in the book because I like the term. It's called theologumena. Theologumena rolls off the tongue. Um, it has the same root as theology, but it's a pious idea that may or may not be correct, and it, it takes kind of time to hash it out. So this is, again, why the ecumenical councils were so important. They were all about critical thinking and, and, and then coming, finding the boundaries, not of truth, but the boundaries of error. How, how much can we think outside the box before we get to the point that we've now entered you know, error? Okay. And I, so I think the boundaries, if you want to say the, the, the banks of the river are quite wide. And yet in order for, some, in order for an idea to become a dogma, that has to be received by the entire church yes. for the same reason I just mentioned that Holy Spirit has to be working in unanimity. Yes. Okay. Now, some, another aspect that I think um, 
separates um, Eastern Orthodox theology is the the emphasis on art. I, I'm sure um, um, you've talked a lot about this, um, but um, I remember hearing a story. Uh, I think it might have been N.T. Wright who said it. It could have his podcast episodes that there was a systematic theology book and it devoted most of its time to discussing art. And um, why is I'm wondering why is this such an important aspect of Eastern Orthodox practice and and theology? Thank you. What what an astute question. And and I actually have such a book. And I'm wondering if if uh, Bishop Wright might have been thinking about the same one. Um, the one I have it's large and there's um, color plates of of icons or holy images. And it's by two very well known Russian Orthodox scholars, Vladimir Lasky, who was a lay theologian. And Leonid, Leonid Uspensky, whose focus was on, on art, as you say, iconography. It's called The Meaning of Icons. But I, And I think to your point, it's really only a book about art because of the colored plates, and it describes the icons. But the main theme of the whole book is God becoming human out of love for his creation. So it's a book about the incarnation because creation in the Orthodox worldview the primary understanding of Jesus is coming is that he's transfigured um, fallen creation. He's healed it by his coming. Mm -hmm. So because Christ took on created human materiality, all creation can now participate in glorifying God. And so, I mean, that's really the, the reason that the icons are acceptable uh, in not acceptable, but absolutely essential in Orthodox um, worship and prayer and contemplation and the Seventh Ecumenical Council said that they convey the same truths as the Gospels. They participate in the presence of God. They bring to us the reality of God's presence in form and color in the same way as words printed in a, in a book on a page. Mm. So, and, Yeah, go ahead, sorry. No, I was going to say the truth is radiating in different ways, but it's the same truth. Right, okay. And I think... Protestants, uh, I think one of the reasons they tend to get uh, a bit uh, uneasy, you know, when talking about um, icons and art and that sort of thing is because they would have a very strong emphasis on uh, like the Ten Commandments or whatever. And they would say, well, what about making images and that sort of thing? And and so how, how do Eastern Orthodox uh, folk, how do they understand those commandments? Well, um, that's a pretty easy question to answer from an Orthodox perspective, because if we actually looked, for example, at either the Hebrew or the Greek Septuagint of the commandment, or um, I guess the first place to look would be Genesis, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Humans were created in the image of God, and the Greek there is ikon, which is icon. And in Colossians 1.15, we're told that Jesus is the image of the father and the same word there is econ so wherever econ is used in the either the greek old testament or the new testament it's always a positive term um, it it means um true image or, or correct image and unfortunately when we're translated into english we look at the commandments the same word image is used in english but what's actually being said there is do not create an evil loan in the Greek Septuagint, or pestle in the Hebrew, which always referred to an idol. And so what, what the Lord was telling Moses from the burning bush was don't make a carved idol. 
And the word is very different from, for example, Jesus in Colossians 1.15, that he is the true image of the invisible God. So the, and I suppose if you wanted to go back to the, the, the commandments, after the Lord gave Moses the commandments, the Lord gave Moses the very descriptive instructions about the images that should be present in their worship. So clearly the Lord is not against all images, but, but those that are formed um, for non-existent beings who would later be worshipped. Mm. And it's I, I love that you bring that out at, about Genesis 1, because <laughs> I remember it's it's been said somewhere that the reason God doesn't want us to make images of other gods is because he's already made his images you know <laughs> so i think that's uh that that's i i really like that you bring that out so um yeah that's that that's a reasonable response i'll, I'll have to i'll have to consider that you know um, <laughs> thank um, you so one thing i've noticed actually is um that this is kind of a different topic but more progressive christian groups um these would be uh, I don't know which 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 uh, churches in America would be the, the more progressive ones. Do you think? Um, prog- well, I guess we'd have to de- we'd have to define that term because it's progressive is kind of a loaded term. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Disciples of Christ. Suppose the Episcopal maybe? Church uh, to a certain extent wouldn't they be? Quite- oh, sure. Yes. Yeah, but um, and I think there's certain branches of Lutheranism, but they they seem to have. Uh, a greater sympathy towards Eastern Orthodox theology mm, and terminology. I've I've noticed that um, than they would, you know, evangelical or, or Catholic theology. And I'm wondering, is this something you have noticed? And um, if it is, um, do you have any idea of why this would be the case? Thank you. Um, I've noticed, and in my experience teaching at a, at a multi-denominational evangelical seminary, I haven't noticed anything along denominational lines, but there are certainly individuals in those groups or in those denominations that are looking for something that are leaning towards Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure about the, as I said, the denominations. There's many ideas that are um, interesting, I should say, from the outside, the idea of Salvation is a process, for example. Um, the Orthodox believe that we cooperate with God in our salvation. Um, we might refer to that as synergy. And so that's something that's kind of unique that people are looking for. Um, I, I think the, the soteriological, soteriologi- sorry, <laughs> I think the soteriological view um, of why Jesus came is interesting. There's a little bit of, of difference than than uh, a lot of views in the in the West that, you know, when you ask the question, what did Jesus do to save you? The Orthodox answer is he came. But most Protestants would say, well, he died on the cross to pay the price for my sins or something like that. And so the Orthodox, I think there's an interest in seeing the bigger picture. The West would call it the Christus Victor model. But I think the idea that that he began his work at his incarnation and the cross is seen in terms of his victory over death and his victory over evil and a restoration of the fallen creation, not so much as a payment, you know, to satisfy God's wrath. So these kinds of things, I think, um, are appealing to, to individuals. I, you know, um, I, I, I would be interested to see if there is a, um, a denominational slant of interest from one, one group or another. Yes, yes. 
And um, you actually brought out a couple of things there that would represent more uh, uh, evangelical anxieties or whatever. And uh, one of those, of course, would be um, soteriology. Mm-hmm. And the other, well, I suppose the atonement is linked to that as well. But like some some Christian, some uh, evangelicals might say, well, and this is obviously a crude car- caricature or whatever, they would say, well, the Orthodox believe in uh, legalism, like it's that sort of thing. Or they might say that... Uh, uh, the Orthodox don't believe in substitutionary atonement. You could feel fear to to respond to that uh, <laughs> hypothetical hypothetical person who raises that <laughs> objection. Um, I I think you're you're right. I've heard that, and that's one of the reasons why why I wrote the book because one of the things you mentioned um, kind of leans towards this work, works righteousness that most Protestants are opposed to Roman Catholicism for, and that's not an Orthodox teaching at all, even though. The Orthodox, you know, the life of an Orthodox Christian uh, includes fasting and, and, you know, good works and all of that. Um, clearly, we are saved by grace. Um, great, salvation is a gift. But the Orthodox understanding is that we have to open the, open the box and take the gift out of the box and use it. So, you, you know, you, it's kind of a bigger picture that is all related. Um, if salvation is a process throughout one's life, it's a very different view than most Western views. And I, and I do kind of explain that um, in the book as well. Um, what was the second thing you said? It was um, in relation to the, the view of the atonement, that there's, ah, that there's, yes. that there's no yes. room for substitution. Well, he certainly went to the cross for us. But again, if you start with the premise that we've inherited Adam's guilt, if you state the problem in that way, then you have to have somebody pay the penalty for that guilt. So it's a question of rephrasing the question in a different way. The orthodox understanding of soteriology or the human problem is that what we've inherited is a fallen condition and there's evil in the world and the, and the devil has power. And so you, when, we, when we talk about it in that way, the, the fact that Christ conquered death, evil, the evil one, he's more conquered our, he's more, um, conquered the enemies of humanity rather than satisfying a debt. And ultimately, it's the same thing. (laughs) The Orthodox believe that he definitely died on the cross for us, that definitely we've been renewed, we've been freed. Um, He definitely rose, he ascended into heaven. All those things are historical realities. But the problem, at least the way I handle it in this book, is that the problem statement between East and West is different. The, The reality is the same. Yeah. And I think a helpful way I heard this explained is in regards to, um, you know, the whole question of original sin and Adam and basically the idea that Adam, um, the orthodox idea is that even though we don't inherit Adam's guilt, Adam was kind of the one who brought it all into the world. Isn't that the the orthodox view that it kind of um, it kind of spread like through almost like a contagion or something through Adam? Exactly. It's more like an illness, it more like an illness than an inheritance of guilt. And, and in a way, that's why we talk about Jesus Christ um, healing and renewing and transfiguring fallen creation. Uh, so yeah, exactly what you said. At this point, I think I'll uh, move on to the, the term part of the interview. I have, a, I have some interesting terms here that kind of feel... Um, prevalent in Eastern Orthodox theology. I think maybe a lot of our listeners have heard these buzzwords, but um, they maybe don't know what they mean. And it might actually help if you could explain them and that might help us get a feel for 
how the Eastern Orthodox think theologically. And of course, another thing that's important to mention is not all of these are dealt with in your book, but they still will, will help us understand uh, the faith a bit better. So the first of these, and you definitely deal with this in the book, is theosis, this idea of theosis. So could you explain what does this term mean and what's it referring to? Thank you. Well, theosis is the main way that the Orthodox will refer to salvation. And in the root is theos, which is God. And it literally means um, union or communion with God. And as I mentioned already, Orthodox understanding of salvation is that it is not a moment, but is a process that begins in this life and, and continues even into the next life. Since God is infinite, uh, the Orthodox think that there is a possibility to continue to grow in communion with God eternally. And so an important spiritual link for that is 2 Peter 1.4, where, where we have been given the promise of being partakers in the divine nature. So the idea here is that, as I mentioned, well, as you know, Jesus is divine by nature, but he took on and healed our human nature out of love so that by grace we can transcend, we can be transcended and share in his divine nature. So that's, that's, really, that's really it. It just it describes salvation as a process. It recognizes that we are finite, but God is infinite, and it also includes um, a, a a high view of God's mercy. Uh, that that this process might even continue, um, and I'm not going to say that 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 those who are not saved in a Western sense will be saved after death. But I'm simply saying that the Orthodox leave open. The possibility that because God is infinite and we are not, and that his mercy is so great that there is a possibility of continuing to move closer to God, even in, this, even in the hereafter. Second term here is um, hesychasm. And this is the one I'm most interested to learn more about because I, I, know, this is, I know this is just uh, uh, me being a, a, a silly Westerner, but I was like, well, this kind of sounds like Buddhism when, when, when I heard it. But uh, what, what exactly is hesychasm? Well, I think, and, and again, I don't really talk about this in the book, but isichia is the Greek word for silence. And so hesychasm, and it's, it's a type of mainly monastic life, those who have chosen to lead a life of prayer and solitude um, through contemplation. It's a way of prayer. And I always think in terms of the Lord's words to the to the psalmist in Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. Because silence, for, for true prayer, silence is essential. And even for, for you know, those of us lay people, those of us in the world and not the monastics, um, beginning to pray involves silence, whether it's, even if it's not a life of silence in this way, in order to, to begin to experience the presence of God in our own private prayer life, we need to sit still rather than, than make noise and continually talk to God. So I think it's mainly a, just a contemplation of the presence of God. Um, the Jesus prayer is, is a way of, Jesus prayer is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me or have mercy on me, a sinner. And those who practice the Jesus prayer usually sit in sit in silence and 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 kind of you know breathe in a particular way so i don't i don't think that it's related to the um to eastern religions in that sense very simply be still and know that i am god that's really the model for the 
even for the monastics. Yeah, I think the reason people would relate it to Eastern religion is because is of course because it it kind of sounds not unlike the meditation that would be done in those kinds of religions, but uh, of course it's a it's a very uh, theistic kind of meditation. Very and, theistic. Yeah, the meditation always includes you know acknowledgement of the Holy Trinity. Another term now. I think this is another one that you don't spend so much time on in the um, in the book, but of course uh, for. Uh, a lot of people, this is one of these things they hear about Eastern Orthodox Society. It's this thing called the energy's essence distinction. So <laughs> what what exactly is this? Could you okay. <laughs> well, the the energy essence distinction would definitely not affect the day-to-day lives of Orthodox Christians, uh, nor most theology students. So yeah, I didn't include it in the book. Um, mainly it because it might lead some to think that it's a replacement for the idea of the Holy Trinity, and it's not. So it, it, it's an ancient idea. Basil the Great in the fourth century talked about the energies of God, but it was Gregory Palamas, not until the 14th century, who was trying to combat a particular a philosophical theological problem. So l- let me explain what the, what the distinction is between the two, and then I'll explain why it might be important. Um, the essence of God is God's internal way of being. And this way, this essence, we can't know about because we're finite created beings. So God has a way of being that's beyond our um, access. However, this God personally interacts with creation out of love directly, not through like prevenient grace, not through a created way of of dealing with us or, or encountering us. So when we experience God, says St. Gregory and others, we experience the energies of God. They're actual aspects of God, the uncreated glory of God. There's a lots of ways we can, we can talk about that. And so one of the main reasons for this distinction was to avoid the problem of saying that God's actions are the same as God's being. And that would lead to the heresy of pantheism. In other words, this would, the distinction was necessary to say that God's essence is not the essence of created things. So creation arose from an intentional action of God's energies, not from an emanation of God's essence. I know it gets confusing, but it's not to say that there is some some other force besides the Holy Spirit. Um, It's simply a way, a philosophical way of of saying um, that God's actions are not the same as God's being. We often say that, you know, my next breath is a, is a gift from God. So I'm probably completely butchering this, but is there, <laughs> is there some sense in which uh, that, that isn't due to God's essence, but it's due to his energies? Is that what you're saying? Or, or? That's, that's what they would say, yes. But, that, okay. and, but also very simply, when you experience something of the divine, it is actually God. And I think it's a contrast to a Western idea of an idea of prevenient grace, that God has given you this grace in order to come closer to God, God's actual being. Whatever is out there in the world, St. Gregory Palamas and others would say, whatever you're experiencing that is truly of God is God. It's the energy. Okay. Yes, the Calvinists who listen to the show, who who heard the word prevenient grace probably... um, gotten very angry wherever they're uh, <laughs> sitting by now but um we won't we, we won't dwell on that anyway. I, I understand <laughs> i understand 
uh, again, I, I, I teach at an evangelical seminary um, and I understand the different views and I love all my students, yeah. <laughs> even, even the reformed Calvinists. <laughs> yeah. I have one more term here that, of course, sure. is very unique to Eastern Orthodox theology. And well, we've touched on this really already, but I suppose you could expand on it. And this is the idea of the and you actually have a, a big, long uh, section in your book devoted. To this is the idea of the icon. So um, where would you start in explaining in explaining that? OK, well. I actually spell out the, the Greek transliteration, the ikon, and it's very important in Eastern Orthodoxy, not just because of the visual art, the icon or the iconography, um, but mainly because of the idea of this cosmic Christological um, presence of God in the world, even in matter. So I have a simple definition in the book, and but it's really a pretty deep concept. And so my definition is that the ikon reveals a divine reality that is invisible, but is nevertheless present. And so I'll go back to Colossians 1.15. If Jesus is the icon, the true image of God the Father, he is revealing the presence of God the Father, who is invisible and yet still present. And, you know, Jesus tells his disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father in John 14, 9. So the icon is not a representation or a symbol of something, but it participates in the eternal reality that, that it has made present. And so it, we, if we go beyond the idea of the icon or the holy image, it expresses truth in a visual way. The, there is a parallel to the divine truth being expressed in scripture by words. So in the Orthodox view, scripture is important, very important, but it's not just text That's because it doesn't, good. yeah, it doesn't have a, it doesn't have a bounded meaning. Um, scripture is understood sacramentally as well because it's conveying divine presence. So I think it just kind of, it just, it opens up scripture in a way that the, that the West doesn't, um, doesn't have. Um, but well, I don't want to say that. That's, a, that's an exaggeration. Um, officially doesn't have. <laughs> so scripture and icons are all of a piece. They all come from the same Holy Spirit and they reveal truth in different ways. I mentioned that earlier. And, and you, all, you mentioned also Genesis 1. So an icon is a human person. Um, scripture can, the hermeneutic, hermeneutic of interpreting scripture is iconic in the sense that it, um, it brings present to us an experience of God in the reading. Um, then, then again, the artwork. And I guess I, I'll mention here that scripture um, is not just read in the Orthodox Church. It's also prayed. Most people don't realize that the Divine Liturgy has over 212 passages from the Old and the New Testament. So it's kind of, it's that kind of, um, I guess I'd say, multimedia approach to theology okay that's probably the best simple answer okay so uh it's uh certainly not sola scriptura in the in the orthodox church then it, it is not but for a different reason that we really haven't touched on but it's in the book um that holy tradition and orthodoxy is the life of the holy spirit in the church and under that life of the holy spirit is is scripture and icons and liturgy and theology. So 
the the most important thing is the life of the Holy Spirit guiding the church. Thanks for all those explanations. I think sure. um, I think the audience will definitely be getting a feel for um, what Eastern Orthodox theology is like. It's certainly um, very very different, but it um, I'd probably want to spend some time talking about you know the um, on a more ecumenical note. And um, what are some of the the crucial areas of agreement that unite Eastern Orthodox theology and that of the other Christian traditions? Oh, thank you. Well, I guess generally the Orthodox emphasize, as you said, every good gift is from is from God. Um, and I think we agree that um, ecologically, for example, that we should be good stewards of God's creation and that our God-given life is sacred. Um, theologically speaking, the, the, the early church fought theological battles um, that because what they experienced about God in worship was being challenged. And so they affirmed through these councils, for example, or through St. Irenaeus' writings and St. Athanasius, what most Christians today believe to be true, that Jesus is fully divine and fully human. And that's kind of an important area of agreement. Yeah. Um, Trinitarian, you know, the slightly different language, you know, with regard to, you know, the procession of the Holy Spirit. But the Orthodox Church is in agreement um, with the majority of Christians about the God, the Father, who um, from whom the Holy Spirit proceeds and from whom the Son is begotten. Um, Orthodoxy believes that there's a need for a Savior due to sin and evil entering the created world, even though the problem statement might be a little bit different, and that Jesus is the expected Messiah of Israel, and he physically actually died on a cross for us in order to save us, and he conquered death, and he actually rose on the third day, and he ascended into heaven, and he took our human form with him into heaven, and he promised he'd come back. So the Apostles' Creed, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. And, in, and in the meantime, um, we're supposed to spend our time in this life by conforming our life to his life, to his example of mercy and love and compassion uh, for, for others, for others in his image, as you mentioned, for everyone created in his image. Well, I can um, give a hearty amen to that. We've come, to, we've come towards the end of our time now, um, and I, I greatly appreciate all the insights you've, you've given us. Do you think your book is going to be kind of a, a step in the process of getting Eastern Orthodox theology more recognized in the world, you know, more, um, more well-known by churches of other traditions? I think so. I hope so. Um, and that was the main reason that I wrote it, is that I, I recognize that most of my evangelical students really didn't know very much about Eastern Orthodox theology. And, you know, we're, we're putting it into a particular um, view of, um, you know, traditional or liturgical Western churches that didn't all exactly fit Eastern Orthodox uh, theology. Yeah. I hope so. I hope it bears good fruit um, and brings people together. Yeah, well, thanks so much, Eve, for coming on the show. It's been great to talk to you. It's my, been my pleasure, Patrick. Thank you for inviting me.